27 uh, tonight. We, uh, the last few chapters, we, we've been talking about this every week, from chapter 24 through 27 is um, what most uh, theologians call the uh, Isaiah's apocalypse, or the mini-apocalypse. So it's Isaiah's big, you know, 50,000 foot view of the end times. And uh, so he gives us some broad strokes that later are filled in in more detail, especially in, in Revelation. Um, and so we're going to be kind of wrapping that up, although he's not done talking about the end times for the whole book, but uh, he's going to move on to some other topics after this chapter. Uh, so just to give us a little bit of context, um, well, actually, let's pray, we'll, then we'll get into it. We'll ask God to help us understand it. Lord, we thank you uh, again for bringing us together, giving us a place where we can worship freely and uh, that we can fellowship and speak your word uh, without fear of real persecution. God, we just pray that you would bless us uh, to have uh, open eyes and open hearts and, and just see the truth that you've, uh, you've spoke through your prophet so many years ago. Help us to understand your word and through it uh, to understand you better, to know you better. Help us to leave here, Lord, being a little bit closer to you than we were when we arrived. We pray for your blessing on the message and on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so yeah, the title of the message is Killing Leviathan. We'll see what that's about here in a minute, but I want to give us a little bit of context. So we're going to go back to the end of chapter 26, just to uh, remind ourselves where we're at. Um, Isaiah 26, verse 20 says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors uh, behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So we, we went into a lot of detail about all that last week, but God basically promised to, to hide his people during this time of indignation or what we call the tribulation and there are different theories on that right it, it, is he talking about um, you know the israelites that uh, the hebrew people that ha have to kind of hole up in petra during the tribulation uh, i believe it's he's talking about um, the church being raptured and out of here you know and so we we are spared that time of indignation but he says, in that day, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns to earth. Revelation uh, describes it this way in a little bit more detail. And I think this will help us understand a couple verses coming up. But we're going to go to Revelation 19, verse 11. It says, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So remember, Isaiah is giving us the broad strokes, and Revelation uh, kind of fills in a lot of the details of what he's talking about. And so, uh, with all apocalyptic literature, there's always going to be a little bit of symbolism. Um, and what Revelation described there, talking about the Lord returning, it said a sword comes from his mouth. I've actually seen uh, medieval paintings where they, <laughs> they painted it with like a literal sword sticking out of Jesus' mouth. Um, I don't think that's what he's getting at, right? The, the sword is the word of God. It's, 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 uh, anyway, we'll get into that. So Isaiah 27, we're going to pick up there. There's our context. Uh, verse 1, it says, In that day, right, in the day that he comes back and the sword and all that stuff, uh, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. We finally are getting into dragons. Been waiting for this stuff. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Nearly every culture on earth has a dragon mythology. It's almost like maybe there was a creature here sometime. Uh, in the past that resembles a dragon. But I'm not... Uh, Isaiah is definitely using some symbolic language here. So we get a new way to describe the serpent, right? He says, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Genesis 3 tells us that the, the serpent was more crafty than any beast and, that the Lord had made. And most of us are probably familiar with uh, that, that story, right? Uh, he comes into the, on, onto the scene. He deceives the woman and brings the curse upon all creation. And we normally, uh, you know, if we are going to illustrate that scene, or even just in our imagination, when we hear serpent, we, we picture probably a snake, right? Uh, but there, there are numerous Hebrew words uh, for different kinds of snakes. Uh, but the ones that are used when referring to the devil, we'll call him what he is, uh, are either nakosh or tanin, and they basically mean the same thing. It's uh, serpent, sea monster, or dragon. That's, uh, th that's what the word means. Um, Revelation 20, verse 2, says this. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It cracks me up when uh, people will debate about, well, what do you think the dragon, are you sure the dragon means, I'm like, well, it flat out says, who is the devil, right? That's, we know who the dragon is. Uh, and it's just another way of describing him, just like Peter he describes the devil as a lion, right? doesn't mean that he looks like a lion, but he's always seeking someone to devour. 
And dragons, uh, you know, were a, a thing of terror, a thing, uh, you know, that it's, they're crafty and wise, but they're terrifying. Um, but Isaiah is introducing another word that we don't commonly associate with the devil. Leviathan. In Job, I think it's 40 or 41, um, that's where we first hear about the Leviathan. And it's described as a, a swimming creature. Uh, it's, its hide is so tough that it can't be pierced by harpoons or spears or arrows. Um, it has massive teeth. It has a belly covered with sharp edges. Uh, and a strong neck and is able, this is important, is able to raise itself higher than the trees. Some Bible translations will render Leviathan as a crocodile. That does not sound like a crocodile to me, right? You, okay, it swims, it's got tough hide. I've never seen a crocodile taller than a tree, unless it's a really tiny tree, I guess. Also in Job, uh, there's another large creature described, uh, Bohemoth. And some translations will call that a hippo. And I think they're just trying a little too hard, right? The fact is, we don't know what creature it is uh, Job, you know, is describing. But it's something that is huge and terrifying that no human could control. That was the whole point in Job, is even Leviathan is subject to the Lord. The Lord is uh, in control over him. But here in Isaiah 27... I'll read it again, verse 1. It says, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Uh, the, the big thing we need to know, right, is Leviathan is, is kind of a catch-all term. It's a word that, uh, it was a symbol for uh, anything terrifying, right? Anything, um, anything that could go wrong. In Psalm 74, uh, the psalmist describes Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, he describes him as a Leviathan, right? Because he's this big, powerful thing that they, they can't overcome except through God. Um, you know, so the, the Leviathan, it's just a, it's a title, it's a symbol. Uh, it, the, and the point is that, you know, evil, no matter how monstrous, uh, will be defeated, Right? Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, he'll kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So there's another little interesting part there, right? He says that he lives in the sea. Uh, Revelation 13 describes... Uh, the beast, I think it's verse 1, says that, you know, the beast rises up out of the sea. Now, I don't know that he literally means like the devil's hanging out in the ocean. Because uh, the Bible tells us he goes to and fro, right? And he actually, uh, you know, can go and talk to, to God. He has access to the throne where he accuses the brethren day and night, it says. But this is something, this is where we need to get, understand a little bit about the culture of the, the people uh, that this letter or this book was intended for, right? What, what did the Hebrew people think of the sea? 
And basically, in all of their writing and in their culture, the sea was always associated with, uh, you know, with wickedness and, and terror and death. It was a terrifying thing. That's why, like, when we read about Jonah, uh, that's what's so crazy is he, he's trying so hard to get away from what God would have him do that he's willing to even go out on the sea, right? They were terrified of the sea. Jesus, uh, whenever he referred to it, he talks about how it's, uh, you know, roaring and tossing and all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, seas, they, they separate us from one another. Right? It's what keeps people apart. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 21, uh, when it's describing the new heaven and the new earth, the first thing it says is uh, there's, there's a new heaven and new, her, new earth, and there's no longer any sea. Now, I'm not saying that the sea is evil, but it, represents, it represented that to these people, right? It was something that, that separates us and something that is to, you can't see the depths of it. You can't see the depths that evil can go to. And so that's, that's why in the new heaven and new earth, uh, you know, it basically says there won't be any of that. There won't be this thing, this cloud hanging over us, this thing that separates us. So does the, de- the devil live at the bottom of the sea? I don't, I don't think so, but I've seen some crazy fish pictures that I'm, I'm pretty sure demons were involved somehow. There's some... That, you know, people are worried about aliens. I'm like, you should worry about the stuff that's under the water. Um, I, you know, I, I, love, I love going out in the ocean. My wife uh, hates it because I love to swim out past the, the breakers, you know, and, and uh, that's where the calm water is. Um, but I've been bumped by sharks a couple times because I think I may resemble, uh, you know, one of the things they eat. Um, story for another day. Anyway. We'll go back to Isaiah 27. So he's Leviathan, this fleeing serpent, this fierce and great, you know, this thing that's, that is so huge that it can't be overcome. He's going to overcome it. 20, Isaiah 27, verse 2, it says, In that day, right, after he, he kills the dragon, he says, In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it day and night, or night and day. Now, Isaiah told us earlier in this book what the vineyard represents. But we'll go back and take a look. Isaiah 5, verse 7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Right, he's already told us this is, this is what the vineyard represents. It's the thing that God, he, he carefully planned it and, and planted it and put a, a hedge of protection around it. Uh, you know, and then in Isaiah 5, he talks about how, what would you do if you planted a vineyard like that? And then uh, it was misused and abused and trampled underfoot. But he says, in that day, when the devil's bound, when the, when the Lord comes and he punishes the, the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, is how he describes it, he says, I'm going to guard my vineyard once again. This vineyard that has gone into disrepair, I'm going to pay, pay close attention to it. 
Verse 4, Isaiah 27, verse 4. He says, I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. So this is a little weird how it's worded, right? He, he says, I'm going to protect, I'm going to guard my vineyard, but I have no wrath. Even though it just said, I'm going to pour my wrath out on the earth, when it comes to my vineyard, I have no wrath. He's, he's going to empty out his wrath on the unbelieving world, but he's not going to be angry with Israel. He says, if, if anything, you know, if there are any briars, anything that creeps in, I'm going to stamp, uh, stomp it out. But I, this, this time is not about me pouring wrath out on Israel. Verse 5, he says, or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. Right? This is what he wants. Israel are still God's chosen people. He, he loves them. In Matthew 23, verse 37, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is looking at his capital city. The city he knows is about to crucify him. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were unwilling. Christians, uh, we tend to have, uh, we tend to view Israel in one of two ways. Uh, either, you know, we somehow think that they're more special, you know, than, than Gentiles, that, you know, like we're going to spend eternity just feeding grapes to the awesome Israelites. Or we have a little bit of disdain for them because they're the ones that crucified Jesus. Right? We, we want to see them eat a little bit of crow. That tends to be the way most people view Israel. Uh, and the reality is, is that Israel, uh, the, the place, is special. Uh, it's God says that uh, that's where he's basic, he basically autographed Israel. Yeah, in 2 Chronicles 33, uh, verse 7, it says, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And he mentions that in several other times in Scripture, that he's basically hand-autographed Israel. This is my spot. And so... You know, there, as far as uh, being chosen, no, he does not love Israel more than he loves you. But uh, we may, sometimes I think we um, view Israel with less honor and love than we should. Isaiah 27, verse 6 says, In the days to come, Jacob, or Israel, will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. So I, I mentioned earlier, this is apocalyptic uh, literature, so we know that most things are figurative, but 
that I think there may be a little bit of a literal twist to this, too. Because most of us, when we picture Israel, we picture rocks and sand, right? When most of us, when we think of Israel, it's all desert and old buildings and bombs. The reality is uh, a little bit different. Uh, this is part of the, the farming, the, the delta of Israel. Uh, I just thought that was a pretty picture, but that's, that's in Israel. Let's see another one. Yeah, that's gorgeous, right? Mm, all kinds of waterfalls over there. Uh, it's much different than how most of us picture it. And part of why, uh, it's always been a beautiful land, but Israel, they uh, lead the world in desalina uh, desalinization technology, taking salt water and making it fresh. Uh, and they've basically irrigated most of the country to where now they not only can feed themselves, but they're one of the biggest exporters of, of food uh, in the world. This little, little piece of dirt to where at this point you just drop a seed somewhere and it's going to grow, you know. Uh, I think Isaiah is being more figurative, but there is a little bit of a literal part of that. Israel is coming back to life, right? Israel in 1948 became a nation again. And in the 60, 70 years since then, it's prospered in amazing ways. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth now. Um, so Isaiah 27, verse 6, he says, In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout. I think they're literally doing that. But, uh, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. They really, literally are doing that, right? Ex exporting fruit all over the world. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily how he means it, right? Uh, in that day, Jacob will take root. They're, they'll have no fear of being driven from their land again, right? There's not going to be any more territorial disputes, uh, no, no treaties where they have to, you know, give up any ground. Um, they'll be rooted and grounded in the Lord. And, you know, like it or not, uh, God chose that place for whatever reason. And he made promises to the Jews, uh, and he keeps his promise. Isaiah 27, verse 7, it says, <clears throat> now this is a confusing verse, I think. It says, like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? Clear, right? Uh, I, I looked all over trying to understand this verse a little bit better. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you don't always have to go back to with a lexicon. And uh, uh, it's not a little short Irish guy. It's a book that helps you understand stuff. But you don't have to go to the, you know, Hebrew or the Greek or whatever all the time. Th those are helpful tools. Uh, and we live in an amazing time when you can just Google that stuff. But sometimes it's as, e as simple as just reading it in another translation because someone has already done that work, right? Uh, and this translation that we're about to put up, 
gets a lot of grief. Um, but actually, if you look at um, his tra- translation techniques, it's actually a pretty solid translation. It's, it's the message. Uh, and this helped me understand it. We'll read verse 7 again in the message. He says, Has God knocked them to the ground as he knocked down those who hit them? No. Were they killed as their killers were killed? Again, no. Right? He's saying he's shown Israel such favor that he didn't do to them what he did to other nations, to their enemies. Verse 8. We'll we'll go back to NASV here. He says, you contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. So God has, at different times, destroyed nations who were enemies of Israel. Uh, When Israel sinned, he did not do that to them. And often, they did less... Um, or did worse than some of the enemies that he wiped out. He didn't wipe them out, but he did allow them to be driven out of their land, right? He allowed them to, you know, there are going to be repercussions. And because I can't help but keep my word. He's, he's, a, he's a good father. In Hebrews 12, we get this... Uh, description of how a father is supposed to deal with his child and how the how the lord deal deals with us and how he dealt with israel uh hebrews 12 verse 6 it says for those whom the lord loves he disciplines he spanks and he scourges every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you endure god deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Uh, my wife works with kids. I think she could point out a couple, couple kids whose fathers do not discipline them. Uh, but he says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if God does not ever discipline you, maybe you're not his kid. You know, if if you never have felt uh, a little tinge of guilt or shame or or like I maybe I need to change something, maybe you're maybe you've never believed in the first place. I don't know. Because he says, if you're one of mine, I am going to discipline you. Uh, furthermore, verse nine, uh, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, and this is, uh, in the Greek, this is uh, the same word that we get gymnasium from. Right, it's a, it's, uh, It helps whip you into shape. Those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So in other words, it, that, you know, that thing that we say, like, this is going to hurt me wor- worse than it hurts you, or, or this is for your own good. Um, 
that really is true when God says it, right? It really is for your own good. It's funny, it, discipline, um, people have a lot of different opinions on it, but God's pretty, pretty blunt about it. He says that the rod of discipline, or that foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child, right? Kids are just dumb. And the rod of discipline will drive it far from them. Uh, there's another verse in the Proverbs that says, Beat them, they will not die. <laughs> like, uh, so the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it from them. Basically, beat the stupid out of your kids. That's, uh, but no, you do, you do this in love because foolishness is in their heart. Right, And if I do not help them get it out of their heart, they grow up to be a fool. And we talked about this last week. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. A fool says there are no repercussions when I do what's wrong. A fool will run toward traffic. Dad yells stop, and they just keep running because why? There's, there's never been any repercussions. So the Bible actually says that if you do not discipline your child, that you hate your son. People misquote that all the time, that uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. Look it up. It's spare the rod, you hate your child. Because you're setting them up for failure. You're going to allow them to be a fool, and it's going to work out poorly. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox about that. Um, but basically, he says, if you endure spankings, they're going to help whip you into spiritual shape, right? And God, has, God does that with us. Uh, and, you know, it's not always a physical thing, but we go through those times where uh, maybe things have kind of blown up in our face or, or maybe he's just been kind of impressing on us that the need for change. Uh, you need to pay attention to that stuff because it literally is for your own good. Isaiah 27, verse 9. I got a little off track there. It says, uh, therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense altars will not stand. So this is something we've talked about all through this book, right? Is that Israel had become idolatrous. And they had these altars to other gods. And he says, this is how, this is part of what's going to show that they've changed, is they're going to turn away from their false idols and grind those idols into dust. So that's important. Because the Bible doesn't teach us to, to hang around the things that tempt us. Sometimes we, we like to think, well, you know, I should be able to be around it. You know, I, I should be stronger. Well, know yourself and know your weaknesses. Know that, you know, that altar, as long as it's there, I'm going to eventually go back to it. I'm going to grind that thing to dust. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And I idolatry, it's the sin that we are most prone to. Because idolatry is when I seek my, uh, my comfort or my security from anyone or anything other than God. 
So flee idolatry. Run from it. That thing that you keep going back to for comfort is the thing he says, you got to grind that to dust. So Israel's going to do that. Isaiah 27, verse 10. For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. Remember, he's made references the last couple chapters to the fortified cities of the enemy. You know, these cities that seemed impervious, and God's going to bring them down. Uh, So he's describing those cities. Verse 11, when its limbs are dry, they're broken off. Women come and make a fire with them. Uh, For they are not a people of discernment. Therefore their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. Basically he's, you know, he's being a little bit figurative here, but basically even when these fortified cities, when the enemy's strongholds are torn down, people will still try to go there and get warmth and comfort from it. Right? There are scrap heaps in my life that I know... No good actually comes from it, but I still find myself going back to it every once in a while, right? No good comes from me eating Jim's pizza at 2 a.m., but if we have Jim's pizza in the house, guess where I'll find myself? You know, what scrap heap do you keep going to for comfort? Read on here, verse, uh, where are we at? Verse 12. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. You know, there are lots of trumpets mentioned in the Scripture and it can get a little bit confusing. You need to be careful and to not always assume that they're the same, same ones. Um, there's a trumpet at the, at the rapture, the gathering, because usually that's what a trumpet means. It's to gather people for worship or gather people for battle or whatever. So there's this gathering of the church. John uh, hears a trumpet that takes him to the throne of God at the beginning of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, I think, chapters like... 8 through 10 or 8 through 11 mention like seven more trumpets that all precede different events. A trumpet blows when Jesus returns and uh, the nation of Israel is gathered together at the end of the tribulation. And Jesus described it this way, Matthew 24, verse 29. And again, people will debate about when this happens. And it's like they can't read or something. It says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. That's when, right? After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. I believe that's the, the trumpet blast that Isaiah is describing. Right? Because Isaiah, he said that you know, he's going to be threshing, there's a trumpet blast, and then we're, I'm, he's going to gather all 
the people of Israel together. Uh, but there's a little detail we're going to hit, and then we'll wrap it up. Isaiah 27, verse 12. Read this again. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. Now, th this is literally talking about the, the Jews during uh, the tribulation, but there's a concept there that, you know, he doesn't just sweep them up with a big broom. He threshes each individual grain one by one. And you can feel a little bit like just a number at church. Or, you know, when you're in prayer, like, do my prayers matter? It's just one voice among billions. But with God, you are not lost in the crowd. He knows you better than you know yourself. And loves you enough to die for you. So, what's all this have to do with us? Because most, again, Isaiah is mainly talking to Israel. I think there's a concept we can take from it. Uh, whatever your Leviathan is, this big insurmountable thing, uh, that monstrous looming thing that you feel like you'll never overcome, uh, he's ready to take it down. And he'll take it down the same way he takes down Leviathan here in Isaiah. It's with the sword of his word. So we'll read one more verse and we'll close it out. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let me pray for you. God, we just pray tonight that you would help us to take your word and speak it into our lives. Help, help us speak truth into our lives and be changed by it. We know that your word is alive and it never comes back void. It always fulfills its purpose. And we know that part of that purpose is to, to bring new life into our lives. So Lord, help us to just trust you to take down the Leviathans in our life. As we're uh, about to worship this weekend, uh, the fact that, that you came, died, and rose again for us, Lord, uh, we just pray that you would help us to be mindful of that sacrifice and know that it wasn't just for the whole world, but it was for me. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you come and come quickly. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, ready? Break. All right.